Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Brilliant. Could the most common future on the horizon be a future with no horizon? The O'Neill Cylinder is a massive rotating space habitat designed to house tens of thousands of people, or potentially even millions, and has been one of our most commonly discussed megastructures here on the channel. However, while we've discussed what an O'Neill Cylinder is a lot, and even what the environment and ecology inside one might be like, we've rarely looked at what might motivate folks to move into one, or what their life would really be like once there. Partially because that is a bit tricky, when asking what life inside one would be like, as the attraction of such habitats is that they can be made very Earth-like and ideally life inside one is just like home. Yet there will be some differences, and potentially many. We should start by reviewing what an O'Neill Cylinder is. The O'Neill Cylinder is named for its original designer, Gerard O'Neill, and its basic form tends to be a smaller design with two such habitat drums, our nickname for a rotating habitat inside a large structure, often with windows involved to let the sunlight in. We often envision no windows on the design these days, with internal lighting provided by mirrors through smaller and safer window ports or simply electrical lighting. The original space art looks pretty cool and beautifully illustrates the core concept, but in practice is not a great design itself, space is hostile and deadly, you want a lot of good thick steel between you and it, not giant windows in the floor. You then simulate the light or pump it in via mirrors to make it very Earth-like, assuming that's what you want. For our purpose today we will mostly just be using the term to describe any such rotating habitat that's roughly cylindrical and has an axial length on an order of magnitude with its diameter or longer, and has an area of around 100 to 10,000 square kilometers, that is to say, big enough to support a reasonably stable community and ecology, but not one of the giants like the continent-sized Bishop Ring or McKendry Cylinder, or the true leviathons like a Banks Orbital, Topopolis, or Niven Ringworld. Let me put an emphasis on reasonably stable community and ecology too. While even a fairly small rotating habitat could be made fully self-sufficient for geological timescales with certain technologies, we don't really envision them existing as a closed system by and large. Indeed even the entirety of Earth is not, and even fairly isolated communities or ecosystems here on Earth usually are getting a lot of input and change from around them, they are not static. For a rotating habitat that needs to be much more active and designed, but hopefully minimally so and mostly in the background. As said earlier, we are not too interested today in the maintenance angle, mechanical or biological or ecological or digital, as we examine those more in environments of space habitats already. Rather, we might start by asking why anyone would build such a thing, and not just one but many thousands of them. Building a few here and there for space exploration or novelty or prestige is one thing, and not a thing we care much about today. No, we are interested in what the setup would be when the average human could at least plausibly contemplate living in one. This brings up a lot of questions. First, is there an incentive to move there of an artificial kind? Folks often suggest we might build a lot of these in orbit around Earth and move into them, and turn Earth into more of a nature preserve, 
which might result in a tax incentive to move into these habitats or even coercion. But as I've mentioned before, the more logical strategy for nature preserves is actually to put them in rotating habitats, as they're a lot easier to keep isolated from human interference or contagion from other ecosystems, and while humanity is responsible for a lot of extinction, we are not solely responsible. I don't know about other folks, but I want to preserve species against extinction from any vector, not just people. I don't really care what killed off the saber-toothed tiger, dodo, or mammoth, natural selection or human intervention, I just want to keep the critters we have around or resurrect the ones who already died off. And an isolated ecosystem tailor-built for an ecology is easier to make that work for than Earth. I also have no idea how you get everyone to move off Earth without using coercion, which would be beyond repugnant to most of us, myself included. However, we do need to think of ways we could get a lot of people to move off Earth into one of these habitats, and the most obvious one is new living area. Planets are big places but a sphere is not a particularly efficient use of raw materials, and terraforming can be a very long and expensive process. You might need to build a million such rotating habitats to equal the living area of Earth, but you can build a trillion of them using the same mass as Earth has and thus get a million times the living room. So overpopulation and general crowding might be one such motivation. Getting more elbow room is pretty much the driving force of migration in nature and human history so makes a very good one. Another reason might be ideological, politically, religiously, or economically, similar to how many of the American colonies started, and so we'll spend some time talking about how these habitats might organize and govern themselves later on. But even that is fundamentally about getting more elbow room and space and these habitats would seem ideal for that. Of course for that to be true it means you need to be able to make these things fairly cheaply and also make them safe and attractively. We often show O'Neill cylinders as looking like giant farms, forests, or parks, but there's no reason one couldn't be a crowded metropolis. The thing is, you don't really need more space for cities on Earth. You can have a trillion people on Earth rather easily, in terms of living area, even with parks. You need all that space for food production and general ecology. That need not be in an O'Neill cylinder though. If you want to preserve ecology, you do that mostly with dedicated nature preserves or quasi-dedicated ones, possibly a big cylinder with a rigid population cap. If I were doing one like that I might say it permitted 1,000 people, half rangers and scientists, the other half wealthy folks who really wanted the big wide open nature space but would agree to strict ecological measures, along with some carefully managed tourist industry, doing that keeps the ecology pretty safe while providing funding. On the food side, we need a lot of space but we can keep it cheap. You don't need to bother putting that on your habitation drum. Cheap, thin cylinders, potentially almost entirely automated and devoted to hydroponics, can get you way more bang for your buck, or grub anyway. I should note that if you haven't already grabbed a drink and a snack, it might be a good time as we'll be here for a bit. Such space farms can export food down to Earth if it comes to it, see the Space Farming episode, and can be used in tandem with in-habitat production to supplement it too. You could keep your livestock on pasture lands but supplement them with hay or cereals grown and baled on some cheap space farm, assuming you don't just produce your meat synthetically. So too, you might boost your own ecosystem's population density of critters by supplementing their food from robot-operated space farms. Either way, your default O'Neill cylinder wouldn't grow food any more than your default suburban housing development does, which is to say there's plenty of gardens and many do grow food people eat but it's not capable of or intended for main food production. 
Transport isn't an issue either, amusingly it would be much easier to transport food from a space farm nearby than to truck it in from outlying farmland to a city on Earth. Getting into space is a pain, once you're up there though, moving back and forth between various habitats and stations that are orbiting the same planet is quite easy. Which also means that much like nowadays, you can commute around rather easily from such habitats to some other nearby space station too, though I'd not expect folks to commute to other stations daily much except for those physically tethered together, which we'll discuss more later. So borrowing hub ports, nature preserves, public or private, and dedicated habitats like some amusement park or resort, we anticipate more of a suburban to dense rural or exurban layout for O'Neill cylinders. That might change with time so that one slowly grew into a metropolis, but my gut says main production will be to those looking for a few acres to call their own. Now considering the cost of building and sustaining an O'Neill cylinder, Obviously you're not doing this until your land costs on Earth are more or less the same as building and maintaining an equal amount of land in a space habitat. Such cylinders might be meshed together into collections of hundreds of them, we could see pricier land costs in one that was connected to a major habitat, for the same reason land can be rather pricey outside but near a city compared to say, Montana. By and large though, especially in relatively early days, The paradigm of location, location, location presumably does not apply since space is huge and is located mostly next to nothing. People are moving there for space, and presumably are working from home or our habitat needs to provide jobs. Of course this assumes employment is anything like nowadays, and considering the cost of literally building land, that generally implies a huge amount of automation. Indeed so much so that if someone says they're a factory worker, they probably mean they are the guy who oversees, maintains, or programs the factory robots, and possibly may not have ever set foot inside the actual factory, which might be thousands of kilometers from their home, and could be freezing cold or boiling hot, and utterly toxic or a vacuum inside. So let's say we are land developers getting ready to build such an O'Neill cylinder. A big first question has to be theme, what's attracting people to our place? because while the mundane is nice, it never commands the best price. There's an assumption we'd mass produce these to standard sizes, and doubtless to some degree that would be true, but I doubt you'd see much cookie cutter arrangement given the scale, so each would likely include at least one weird thing, like a giant waterfall or low gravity forest near the end caps, which can be cone or bowl shaped. A question that arises though is if it's being commissioned or if you're building it with the intent of selling plots and parcels. My hunch would be that you'd have two major ways of doing this. First, an organization, such as a business or government, might entirely fund the thing or sell bits as they go, probably some being sold before the first hull plating was even being fabricated. Second, you might have groups of people get together to build one, each getting a chunk of land equal to their investment. Which raises a point on size, bigger is better for the natural look. But we shouldn't just assume these things always get built as big as we can economically and safely produce. You can potentially add to such habitats over time if you want, making them longer, but in practice you just connect them together with others, so what you build is what you got. However, these things do require constant maintenance like any structure, see the Space Chandles and Maintaining Megastructures episode for details, so abandoning and scrapping one is entirely viable over just running it for tens of thousands of years, even when you feel it isn't big enough anymore, with some interesting implications, see the Space derelicts and Trash Wards episode for those. All of which means that while you probably build with growth in mind, and generational growth at that, 
you probably will see many more commissions of smaller habitable cylinders than those pressing the boundary of what material strength permits. You might get one commissioned by just a few hundred people, intended for only a few thousand residents tops, far more often than the juggernauts. As a hypothetical, your default village of maybe a thousand folks, most living in or near town with the rest given over to forest and garden and so forth, probably only needs to be 10 square kilometers to be considered rather ample and spacious, just contrasting it to several of the towns and villages of my chunk of semi-rural northeast Ohio. That would equate to a cylinder a kilometer in diameter and 3.2 kilometers long, about 2,500 acres of land and water on the section under spin gravity for those more comfortable thinking of housing and acreage. Needless to say, that's a pretty arbitrary figure, you could go smaller or more dense or bigger or whichever. I pick that number for population more in terms of what works nowadays for an effective semi-isolated community. Dunbar's number, around 150 or 160 people, is a handy population size basis we've used before for discussing this topic or colony ships, but the minimum optimal size for a fairly self-contained community is very dependent on technology and culture. As an example, if you want to have your own school for a community and with modern US population growth rates, a thousand people would have about 14 being born to them every year, not really optimal for class size, just one class per grade of 14 kids, give or take. On the other hand, if education shifted to smaller classes, or more remote, or one-on-one formats, that would not be a concern. It's hardly the only one where a larger community size helps, but it's a good example insofar as people tend to look at the schools heavily when picking a community to settle down and raise their kids in, and if anything, I'd tend to expect parents in a more prosperous society to be even more choosy in that regard. If you want to have a shopping mall inside your habitat, it needs to be either A, easily accessible to neighboring habitats, or B, have an internal population large enough to support said shopping mall, which would obviously require many thousands of people. Then again, we probably won't have a lot of giant shopping malls or plazas in the future as we transition to more online commerce. But don't think of transport between habitats as super encumbering, It's quite easy to build, with only modern technology, the equivalent of a personal car as a spaceship or space bus for public transport. The Delta V such a thing needs to drive to a neighboring habitat in the same approximate orbit around a planet is small enough that you could commute over a larger distance than folks do now in less time and with less fuel. Plus you really can lash hundreds if not thousands of these cylinder habitats together in a big static glob. You might need to start using some very strong or thick tethers or struts if you're trying to connect thousands of megatons of habitats together at several kilometers of distance, but it's not too big a deal and easier in higher orbits too. No two orbital paths are exactly identical so two objects orbiting a planet next to each other will drift apart over time, but even a thin rope would easily keep two houses together while separated by many meters of distance, so you just have to scale it up. Plus, with ships presumably constantly leaving and arriving, and likely being coordinated to avoid collisions and jams, you can strategically time arrival and departure to provide thrust in the right direction or station keeping too. Most of these habitats rotate around on an order of a few minutes, part of why windows for sunlight are non-optimal, so coordinating arrivals and departures to get free station keeping is not introducing major delays. You also might charge residents a tiny fee for launching their space car at the wrong moment to pay for the wasted momentum I suppose. Of course if they're all lashed together you can just run monorails between them, 
and since it's in the vacuum of space those can get moving very very fast, with no friction or air drag to worry about, and most of the energy is recoverable when it slows down. Accelerating at 1G so that you felt like you had normal gravity, such a space train could get you to a destination hundreds of kilometers away in mere minutes. Incidentally, these don't have to be between objects that are stationary relative to each other, you could easily shoot grapples at passing stations on a winch to keep it taut as you moved around near each other, though not too fast, and just disconnect it and winch it in when the transfer was complete, though I doubt you'd use this approach frequently. Nor does it have to be tethers, connecting rotating habitats together with an actual corridor filled with air is a bit of a pain, and doing it with something like a third connecting skinny rotating habitat that has its own ecosystem would be a major pain, but it is doable. You can take two big nature preserve cylinder habitats and connect them with a third skinny tube that allowed migration by air, sea, or land, though land in particular would be a serious hassle, especially if you were trying to keep a consistent Earth normal gravity on it. Doing big connection hubs where several cylinders meet together and stick off at different angles is best done with no gravity and just a pressurized interior, and it would obviously be fine for humans and probably birds too, but you could get more elaborate if you want. I suspect you'd often see dozens if not hundreds or even thousands of these cylinders connected together to form bigger communities, possibly with new ones being added or old ones deciding to leave and join another conglomeration. Such habitats aren't really ideal spaceships, since you don't build them with much acceleration in mind, but they are definitely mobile, so if your community decides it hates the rules imposed by a bigger conglomeration community, it can up and move. That's another reason smaller habitats might be preferred too, potentially even single family ones though you can't build these too small and keep them feeling very natural. This would be very different from communities in the present, which can't move, so the my way or the highway approach isn't really viable today, but could become possible with O'Neill cylinders, just like it possibly is with modular seasteading. Space habitats can move, and so we might see an entire cylinder move elsewhere if a big factory or corporation most folks worked at went belly up, instead of creating the ghost town effect we often see nowadays and in recent centuries. Of course they might be pretty routinely mobile too, a cylinder focused on asteroid mining and refining might routinely pick up, burrow into a new asteroid, mine it out, then leave. Which raises the question of how these might all be governed. By default your natural smallest subsidiary government would be the whole cylinder itself, though of course larger ones might contain several village councils, while again you can potentially have single household units. If I had to guess you'd probably see something like a municipal or town government at the cylinder level, then something like a county or district government for a conglomeration, then those being woven into something like a province or a smaller nation consisting of many such conglomerations. Odds are such conglomerations would also have some permanent central hub and tons of ancillary facilities under low or no rotation, be it defense platforms, industrial facilities, space farms, large solar arrays, or what have you. Such conglomerations can obviously vary wildly in size, but let's imagine one rather standardized to be 100 conglomerations each consisting of a couple dozen habitats and support facilities of varying but modest sizes. Each conglomeration is a county government, each habitat a town, village, city, etc., depending on its configuration. That 100 conglomeration total might have tens of millions of people in it, or way more for that matter, but it's a fairly plausible 54th state or self-governing nation. 
Your default full-sized O'Neill cylinder could handle a million folks inside it in relative luxury for space, and a pack of a dozen of them tied together would obviously rival most modern nations, the median size for which is under 10 million people. A growing humanity might see nations number themselves in the trillions, or even quadrillions, or it might see a move to micronations of well under a million apiece, and quite possibly both at once and everywhere in between, but I'd expect the individual habitat to be your lowest common subdivision. This of course assumes democracy and local rule is more the norm, and while local rule would probably be the norm, especially early on, you could also have habitats being owned by individuals or families who basically rented the land, akin to your basic feudal or aristocratic setup, potentially even getting some futuristic equivalent to titles like Baron, Count, or Duke, or even brushing off the old titles for use. I'm not sure I'd care for living in such a setup personally, but many folks might be fine with the owner handling most administrative matters, so long as their personal and civil rights were guaranteed. And of course flat out tyranny is always an option too. So how about living in one day to day? Well, they can be tailored to be very Earth-like, of whichever climate on Earth you like, mostly differing in that the sky is your neighbor's backyard and the horizon curves up. There's plenty of techniques for obscuring that, though you might not always bother, and indeed you might not always aim for very Earth-like, you might want habitats with lower gravity or varying gravity, or whose sky was green or magenta or whichever. For day-to-day life, by default, the goal is to be as Earth-like as you can make it, and you can make it very Earth-like indeed, though again I suspect most would not only accept some differences for practicality, but engineer even more for uniqueness. You can, for instance, do sky cities on rotating habitats relatively easily, a house or village can just swing from a tether around the middle, which in some ways is what the whole habitat is doing anyway, and you can do some rather peculiar and fun things with the interior geography and climate too. Maybe the biggest difference is that, no matter how secure you make the O'Neill Sonder space habitat, there's always going to be some fear of a catastrophic puncture even if it's engineered so solidly that the odds of it are always way less than typical Earth-based calamities like earthquakes, hurricanes, tsunami, or asteroid impacts. That fear will be there, and would probably manifest itself as most houses having an automated lockdown and airtight capacity, so they could act as a life pod if someone nukes a giant hole into the side of the habitat. You might also see a lot of general architecture and landscaping seeking to segment or contain areas against such a blowout hidden diaphragms or plasma windows, ultra-transparent glass walls with occasional airlocks, dividing the habitat into wedges or other segments, and so on. House basements themselves might poke right through the skin of a habitat drum too, to connect to exterior vacuum train monorails or have a space car garage there. Indeed such space houses might be mobile, like an RV, and just plug into rented land parcels, the spaceship being your house, which you can move to a different habitat if you choose, same as the habitats can move to different conglomerations. I tend to assume houses will only get bigger and more luxurious as technology improves, and I'd not be surprised if your typical suburban family dwelling on one of these cylinders was something between a mansion and a buried skyscraper and spaceship, poking out between the hull on the outside and the ground on the inside. This is especially the case considering the existence of these things implies you've gotten very good at creating artificial green spaces and adapting to those, and of course have very good and cheap construction. An O'Neill Cylinder, while often shown just being a surface inside a can, is likely to be laid out far more three-dimensionally anyway, 
so a certain amount of subterranean infrastructure is not only likely, but probably so prevalent that the green space and gardens inside are less like a plot of land with houses on it, and more like a vast infrastructure and dock that someone's dumped dirt and water on top of, a massive rooftop garden. Those subterranean levels though might be just as garden-like in some spots as the surface layer, and in other sections they would be utility tunnels keeping the top layer free from overhead cables and ensuring everyone in the habitat proper receives proper data connectivity, freight tubes, and plumbing. Weather control on these habitats is easily accomplished too, though the weather might not always be mild since the inhabitants might not prefer that. Now if conglomerations of habitats rather than isolated ones was the norm, you'd probably also start seeing specialized economies in each chunk of the conglomeration, and likely each specializing in many other ways too, even ecologically and climatically. Nothing is really stopping a conglomeration from containing hundreds or even thousands of habitats after all, so you might get rather inhospitable habitats in a conglomeration just because it was big enough folks wanted a ski resort or a place where it was cloudy and dark and raining all the time. Divergence and specialization have value, both in abstract and practical economic terms, so there would be many differences for life on board an O'Neill cylinder compared to living here on Earth, and probably many more than we'd expect, but again they fundamentally are meant to be just like home, and where they won't be, probably only because they've intentionally been designed to be more comfortable or interesting. Which is a good thing because it's quite likely that in the centuries to come these will start becoming a common place for folks to live. And if we stay mostly human, still wanting a nice house and a lawn, then as we grow to enclose our sun and transition towards a Dyson Swarm, conglomerations of these cylinders would likely be where the overwhelming majority of folks lived, not on planets. In the far future, life on board an O'Neill cylinder might be the norm, and everything else the weird anomaly. A common source of confusion with rotating habitats is why you experience gravity, or something effectively identical to it, and why you'd fall down to the bottom if you were hovering in the air. Fundamentally this comes down to understanding what we call a rotating frame of reference, and we happen to live on one, the Earth keeps spinning under you if you jump up, indeed it spins faster than a passenger jet, but you land back down at the same place. If you'd like to get a better understanding of the physics involved, I'd recommend trying out the Rotating Reference Frames quiz in Brilliant's course on Classical Mechanics. Brilliant is an online learning community with over 60 interactive courses and many quizzes and puzzles, plus daily challenges that help you get the brain warmed up for the day. Those challenges provide a context and framework that you need to tackle so that you learn the concepts by applying them, which is the best way to learn new concepts. Brilliant makes learning fun and easier and their online community gives you places to discuss the material or ask questions, and their mobile apps offline feature lets you take courses even when you're not getting a good signal. If you'd like to learn more science, math, and computer science, go to brilliant.org slash IsaacArthur and sign up for free. And also, the first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription, so you can solve all the daily challenges in the archives and access dozens of problem-solving courses. So today we looked at living under artificial gravity in cylinder habitats, and next week we'll be contemplating living under low gravity in crater habitats, as we return to the moon with crater cities. The week after that we'll head deep into the future to examine the heat death of the Universe and look for ways to postpone that, assuming we're still around in many trillions of years to need to worry about the problem. 
We often worry that we might not be, and one of the more common concerns for what might end our civilization is artificial intelligence. So before we look at postponing the heat death of the universe, we'll have a bonus episode looking at the problem of coexistence of humans and AI. For alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel and hit the notifications bell. And if you enjoy this episode, hit the like button and share it with others. And if you'd like to support future episodes, visit our website, isaacarthur.net, to donate to the channel or check out some awesome SFIA merchandise. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.